is an audio platform created to educate, inform, and empower women to take charge of their physical and mental health. Join Shalana Battle and her occasional guests as they discuss many issues and health topics that concern women. While many health tips and advice will be discussed on this platform by licensed professionals, it should not take the place of seeking help from your own physician or therapist. If you feel that you need professional advice or medical assistance, do not hesitate to contact your provider. Now, let's get to the show. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of The Eavesdrop. If you are new here, I just want to take the time to thank you for stopping by. I am always appreciative of people who are supportive of the show. Um, As I've mentioned before, it is definitely what fuels my engine to know that women are listening and they are receiving lots of useful information. So today I have a wonderful show prepared for your listening ear today. So it's kind of like a continuation of last month's episode when we talked about sexual wellness with marriage and relationship therapist Shirley Dorsonville. And in this episode, we explored sex from a more holistic approach. We explored sex therapy and how our lives or how our sex lives can be impacted by our emotional, social, and mental health. And it was a very informative and epic episode, if I do say so myself. (laughs) And if you have not had a chance to listen, be sure that you go back to season three, episode six. Now, I wanna ask you all a question. Do you all remember Salt and Pepper's classic song, Let's Talk About Sex? It went something like this. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Now, they should have hired me as a background singer. But back in the early 90s, this song was the jam. Now, granted, I probably shouldn't have been listening to it at that time because um, I probably was really young and probably didn't really even understand the meaning behind it. The song not only had a catchy beat, but it had an important message. Salt and Pepper were very intentional about the message they were trying to send within that song. They wanted communities, particularly the African American community, to know that having conversations about safe sex was both necessary and sexy. I think the song was released back in the early 90s and this was during a time when HIV and AIDS were at an all-time high and it was considered an epidemic and it was really affecting the African-American community disproportionately when compared to other races. And fast forward to 2021, it is still that way today. Just like salt and pepper, I think that having conversations with our partners is so crucial. Communication is the first line of defense against sexually transmitted infections in pregnancy. And you might say, well, why would you say communication is the first line of defense? Isn't condoms and birth control? I say 
that communication is the first line of defense because it is communication that will ensure that your partner wears a condom. It is communication that will lead you to knowing your partner's status before you engage in sex. Communication is also beneficial for your sexual pleasure and enjoyment. If we don't communicate, it may be hard to achieve these things. So today we are going to have the conversation with sexual educator, speaker, and sexual health advocate, Erica Butler. So are you ready for this dialogue? I hope you are, sis. Get your wine and let's go. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for joining the eavesdrop today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, me too. I'm so excited for this conversation we are about to have today. We are about to discuss sexual conversations and relationships. And usually mm-hmm. I bring out the wine for the wind down segment of this show. <laughs> but for this conversation tonight, I had to bring out the wine. Yes. Bring it out from the beginning, honey. Just have it on standby. (laughs) Yeah, so tonight I have my Black Girls Magic by the McBride Sisters. Oh, I love that wine. Yes, they're Red Blend. That's what I have tonight. I just got Uh Riesling. I kept it real simple. I got Riesling. Riesling will do get it at the little bodega down the street from my house, honey. (laughs) You're just going to pour it real quick. Yes. Yeah, but before we get into this juicy topic of sexual conversations and relationships, I want you to tell the audience a little bit more about Erica. Yeah, no, definitely. So yes, like she said, my name is Erica Butler. I currently reside in Columbus, Ohio, and I own a very small, and by small I mean just me, (laughs) uh, sex education consulting company that goes by the name of Happy Sex Talk. And that's spelled H-A-P-P-E, sex talk, all one word. And I have been in the field since I started doing, you know, peer health education as an undergrad at Miami University back in 2005. And I did some work in research shortly after I graduated and then quickly realized that I wanted to get my master's of education in human sexuality And there was one school in the entire country that offered that degree (laughs) in a way that was accredited and aligned with the national organization that like certifies sex educators, therapists, counselors. And it was in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Philly, Widener University. And in my first year of marriage, my husband and I decided why not relocate to a new city where we know no one and both go to grad school at the same time. It was super smart, <laughs> and, um, but we both made it. And so I have a master's of education, which is like any other master's of education degree. It's just in specifically sexuality education. Um, so, you know, I do anything with my company ranging from building curriculum from the ground up all the way from, you know, creating lesson plans and all of the information about unit sequencing and all these sorts of things all the way down to evaluation. I also host workshops. I do one-time seminars. I educate in schools. I also host a local sex trivia event at bars here for adults called the Sexy Zone. That is a pretty 
a pretty well-known thing in the city of Columbus. I did my first virtual one over quarantine and it was super stressful, but it went so well. <laughs> so I may be doing another virtual version of that before we go in person again. I'm actually in the works to make that event into a card game so that you can play the game, you know, if you have a bunch of people over or if it's you or a partner or whatever. So it's just like any other trivia event, just again, all about sex, real fun, all the fun topics, orgasms, masturbation, couple stuff, uh, mm. all the good things, romance, attraction, you know, all the mm. stuff. And then I also educate parents about how to talk to their kids about sex. I have my own podcast called Okay, Let's Keep It Sexy that you can listen to on Spotify and Apple. I'm on all the socials. Happy Sex Talk. Please follow me everywhere. I also have a Patreon account where I create exclusive content and do like behind the scenes things with projects. And I'm working on creating some virtual classes that people can sign up for specifically parents, toddlers, and high schoolers is kind of where I'm starting about how to talk to their kids about sex. And so um, there's a lot of things, a lot of things going on. <laughs> but yes, this I is all amazing. Yeah. And you're doing all of these different activities and building these different organizations through your company, Happy Sex. Yes, through my company. All this is with yep. your company. Oh, yeah, awesome. all of it is with my company. Yeah, yeah, I do work with a nonprofit here in the city called Root, which is a Black-led, mainly Black doula-led organization that works mm -hmm. to create awareness and fight against issues of reproductive justice and infant and maternal health. And that nonprofit is called Restoring Our Own Through Transformation. Also, for short, is Root, R-O-O-T-T. -T. And so I work with them to find funding to be able to give sex education in the schools for free because we feel together we both feel that one way to tackle issues that we have with reproductive justice is to start conversations about sex education as early as possible and so the curriculum that I developed for their organization and that we offer currently at one high school with the hope of expanding is a, a curriculum that works with parents as well so not only do I teach the kids, I also teach the parents and provide information about how to incorporate conversations from the classroom at home, educate parents about their own relationships and healthy things to talk about at home, how to start those hard conversations, how to find the best moments to talk to your kids about things. I offer one-on-one -on -one time for the parents to talk about specific things going on with their kids and we try to make it as, you know, inclusive as possible and include as many people as we can because everybody needs this education. I know I didn't get it and I know the generations before me didn't get it. Yeah, <laughs> and, the and they're not getting now, it now. Mm -hmm. They're not getting it. So in the state of Ohio, there's no mandate for sex education to even exist, but they do say if it does, it should be abstinence only and it doesn't have, there's no mandate for it to be medically accurate. So they can literally spew whatever information they want and include their own morals and values and whatever into how they're educating the kids here. And that's the type of sex ed that they're getting. And so my approach is a more comprehensive approach to sex education. So I talk about abstinence, of course, but I talk about everything because it's important for people to have 
all the information they need to make the best decision for themselves and their bodies and their life. And they can't make those educated decisions without knowing all of the information that is pertinent to those decisions. So, you know, they can't make those decisions if they don't even understand what body parts are involved or what happens to their body at a certain period of their time, puberty, menstruation, all those sorts of things. So I do what I can to, you know, make that information exist in the world. <laughs> and I'm glad that companies like yours and people like you are out there in our communities because I really think that we've gotten to a place in our society where we've placed such a stigma on sex that we don't think enough of it now that it needs to be something that's taught in school because we're yeah. letting social media teach our kids we're letting the tvs the commercials the movies and sometimes if they're not going to get it from professionals they'll get it from their peers and the information Uh that they receive from their peers is not the correct information so in order to stop diseases like hiv the spread of chlamydia the spread of all these different Mm -hmm. sexually transmitted infections they really need to get the information from good sources and so I'm glad that you have happy sex talk to help do that very important yeah yeah media literacy is definitely a foundational element to everything that I do and I should also say that I primarily work with black people Mm -hmm. I am black I love black people I love my community I love everything about us and I just want to make sure that we have all the information for us coming from a source that knows exactly what's happening in the community and not somebody who's whitewashing things and <laughs> assuming yep. that they know what's happening <laughs> yes. um, you know, for people. And so everything that I do is created specifically for the population that I am teaching in that moment. And I love that I have the privilege and the knowledge and was able to get that education to be able to do that and provide that for, for people who look like me. It's very important. You know, I'm, I'm a mom of two two who are four and a half and one who is two years old. I am married to an amazing black man. I have an amazing black father and my mom is white, but I am very proudly biracial and identify as black. And I think that it's important to do what I can to create a better environment and community and understanding about these topics for my children and their friends and the generations beyond them. And so however I can do that for us, I will work tirelessly to make happen until I can anymore. So speaking of safe sex and talking about safe sex, the first question that I have up for discussion is sexual safety or safe sex. And safe sex can be an awkward conversation to have with someone for the first time. Mm -hmm. But it is a very important topic that we should discuss with a prospective partner. So how do we open the conversation about sexually transmitted infections and safe sex in a way that doesn't cause tension in the bedroom? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And ironically enough, this conversation, at least in my mind, should be a little bit easier for people because of the language that we have to use around COVID. So we're currently asking our friends, have you been tested recently? Have you been vaccinated? Where did you, you know, get your last test? Or have you found a new spot to get tested that gets you results sooner? Or all those sorts of things. 
those that's all language and vernacular that we in the sex ed field have been begging people to use when it comes to these types of conversations around like when was the last time you were tested hey can we go get tested together do you have a condom if not i've got one are you on birth control so like people sometimes assume that their partner this is again thinking more in like a male female sexual encounter but people are thinking like one person's on birth control the other person's thinking that they're bringing a condom and then you get there nobody's on birth control and neither person had a condom we don't really advocate for non-penis having individuals to carry condoms and that seems ludicrous to me because if i'm going to take the initiative to prioritize my sexual health i'm going to have whatever i need to keep myself safe with me anytime i feel like that could be a possibility right anytime that i feel like some sex can happen i'm gonna make sure that i have what i need to protect me on my person right so whether that is an internal or external condom whether that's a dental dam whether you know that i mean there's a million things that you can have to protect yourself whether that's being on birth control i mean birth control helps prevent pregnancy but condoms are what helps prevent the spread of STIs and HIV. And of course, nothing is 100% except for abstaining from having sex and masturbation. You can't get yourself pregnant and you can't give yourself an STI or HIV. So it's opening up the conversation about when was the last time you got tested? Can we go get tested together? I know this spot that does it for free. Do you have condoms here or do I need to go get mine? Or you know what I mean? Like making sure you know the right ways to store a condom so that you're not starting off behind because you've got a condom that's expired or already has a hole or, you know, and just having those open conversations about what you need to have happen in order for you to feel safe and secure and like you can trust the person that you get in busy with, right? Like it's all about taking your own sexual health by the reins. And so the more you have these conversations, the more you're prioritizing your sexual health, the more confident you'll be, the more comfortable you'll be, the more excitement you'll have in your sexual experiences because you can be free and do what you want because you know you being safe, you know the person you get in busy with, all those sorts of things. It all kind of trickles down. And that's yeah, the I case had... even if it's a one night stand. Like, even if you only have one encounter with somebody. I agree. And I think that the conversation about uh, sexually transmitted infections and getting tested or revealing that you have one, because we live in a canceled culture. And I think that is the reason why so many people are embarrassed to talk about it. And then the stigma that is on sexually transmitted infections at of the end course. of the day. Yeah. And I think that people have to realize that we live amongst that you know we live with that in society and if you're sexually active you're at risk for getting sexually transmitted infections i mean and so, most of sexually mm -hmm. active people are going to contract something at some point in their sexual lives for most people for most stis the stat is like one in four you know what i mean like there's four specific stis that are considered incurable the rest of them can be handled with antibiotics and and different treatments and even mm -hmm. the ones that are considered incurable are not death sentences. You can still exactly. have healthy sex lives. Mm -hmm. You just have to be educated 
on how and when you can do those things. Yeah, and, and that's then, the key word, you know, education. Yeah. Because the yeah. more educated you are, the mm-hmm. more you can do away with the stigmas, the more yeah. you can do away with being embarrassed about talking about it. So I just think yeah. that, you know, we have to first educate ourselves more about mm-hmm. it and then just be willing to have the conversation with the potential person who you're about to engage in sex with. And I always yeah. tell my young clients that if you can't talk to this person about, you know, status or encourage them to get tested or in, even encourage them to wear a condom, then that should mm-hmm. be red flags to you. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that right, this is right, a person right. that has never gotten tested, that doesn't want to wear a condom, but wants to be out there having sex, you know, so right. that should really or, be red flags to you. Yeah. If it's a matter of like, you don't feel comfortable bringing up those topics that maybe you should give yourself more time to feel comfortable enough with this person. Because if you can't ask the basic questions to know the status of like someone's sexual health for your own benefit and for your own health and safety, then maybe you're just not ready to be at that stage of a relationship with that particular person. Maybe you should just wait a little bit. And also I don't want people to think that if you have already been sexually active with somebody, you can still bring this topic up. It's not like, oh, we've already had sex. What's done is done. There's no sense in talking about it now. No, no, no. You advocating for yourself and your body and your sexual health is always important. It doesn't matter if you've been sleeping with somebody, if you slept with them once, if you've been sleeping together for six months, eight months, two months, two weeks, I don't care. The conversation is always relevant, right? Because you should be getting tested if you're sexually active every three to six months anyway. And some STIs stay dormant for a while. So even if you are only in a monogamous relationship, if they were in a relationship previous to you, something could come up later on down the line that they're not even aware of. Because let me also be very clear, the most common symptom for STIs is no symptom at all. And that is for all bodies. That's not just for those with the penis or those with the vulva. That is for all bodies. The most common symptom is no symptoms at all. So the only way to know if you, you know, are being safe is to get tested every three to six months. And a lot of places are super busy and they operate on a no news is good news sort of policy. But that doesn't mean that you can't call and follow up and actually physically hear somebody in your ear or have somebody physically tell you in a doctor's office Mm -hmm. that your results are negative. You can always call and ask about the status of a test that you gave or that you had at a doctor's office. So it's just a matter of being confident. I mean, we, we go get physicals. We go to the doctor when we've been sick for two weeks. We go to the doctor when we get a cough. We go to the doctor for everything else. This is just another part of, you know, us taking care of ourselves and our bodies and staying safe. So, right. And making sure we have a clean bill of health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay. So now we're going to go into the issue of faking orgasms. (laughs) So there are women who run into the issue of faking orgasms and it's because they do not enjoy intimacy with their partner and they do not want to be honest because just bringing up the fact that they are not enjoying sex can bring up an argument or they don't want to hurt their partner's feelings. How can we be open through conversation with our partners if we are not enjoying sex? Great question. Um, 
Yeah, the orgasm gap is a very real thing. And that gap has slowly over the years been getting bigger and bigger. I think it's like 70% of men have said that they are satisfied and experience an orgasm in their last encounter versus 34% of women are saying that they have experienced an orgasm and enjoy sex. And then I think that number even goes down more in the pandemic specifically. So there's a lot of things that are going into this. Yes, the reasons that you mentioned are true for some people. It's a matter of like not wanting to hurt your partner's feelings and not knowing how to start the conversation and having it be like this awkward thing that you don't want to ruin kind of like the flow of the intimacy in your relationship. But then there's also people who honestly just don't know their body well enough to be able to, to tell their partner what is enjoyable for them and or they only know how to experience that pleasure when they are doing it for themselves solo during masturbation and it doesn't necessarily translate when there's another person involved. So opening that conversation with your partner can go something like, you know, hey, I was thinking that we take some time to explore each other's bodies from head to toe and find out what parts of our bodies we really enjoy being touched, fondled, kissed, rubbed, whatever, and start from head to toe and just make note for each other because we've been at this for however long and we things change, our bodies feel different, bodies have stretched or gotten thinner or things have just changed, adjusted. Nobody stays the same forever, right? And so take the time to explore your partner's body and then have them do the same thing and kind of open it up that way. And then you can in the moment, like when something feels good, you can tell them, apply more pressure, not as hard, turn this way, do like you see what I'm saying? And you can in the in the moment give them some directives on what feels good and then they know what to do. Nobody's a mind reader and it's also not your partner's responsibility to give you an orgasm. The only person who holds that responsibility is you because you are the only one who knows your body well enough to know what feels good, what's going to you know turn you on, what's going to get you going. And also it's important to understand that orgasms and ejaculation are not uh, completely correlated. You can experience an orgasm without ejaculation, and you can experience ejaculation without an orgasm, right? So there are some people who experience an orgasm through nipple stimulation alone. That doesn't mean that they're also ejaculating at the same time. So what you think may not be enjoyable could just be a different experience that you're not aware of, or it could be that like you have a more intense orgasm with clitoral stimulation versus uh, vaginal stimulation. So just kind of opening the door to doing body exploration and asking them like, you know, when you pleasure yourself, are there things that you notice that feel different that doesn't happen when we're together? How can I help make that happen when I'm around and see if that's a more intense feeling for you? Because what I've noticed is when I'm pleasuring myself, this, 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 and this happen, And I'd like to experience that with you as well. You know what I mean? So don't make it a, you're not pleasing me because of this, 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 and this. Make it an ongoing conversation. Try to make it like you trying to level up your relationship and your intimacy. And sometimes it could not be enjoyable because y'all are just disconnected intimately. And so even doing things like kissing for a minute or staring into each other's eyes for a minute without 
looking away or doing things that are helping you reestablish intimacy could make the sex that you don't find enjoyable, enjoyable again. It could just be, it's COVID. Like everybody been looking at each other's mugs every day for a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe they mug is just pissing you off right now. And so like, mm-hmm. you just gotta, you know, people are homeschooling kids and like juggling mm-hmm. a lot of things, taking care of parents and family members and taking in other people's kids and co-parenting with friends. There's a lot of stuff going on. People have been taking on a lot in the last year and a half yeah. and it's bound to it's bound to mix up some things in your sex life, especially if you live with your partner. So mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, think about opening the conversation as ways that you can both make sex enjoyable for each other as opposed to deliberately saying why it's not enjoyable for you. I don't, now let me be clear, I don't say that in terms of don't not voice that it's important for you to have enjoyable sex, but if you mention something like, I've just noticed the past few times that we've been intimate, I haven't really experienced an orgasm or ejaculation like I normally do, and so I think that maybe we can just try this reconnection and see what happens, and maybe my body's changing, and let's kind of figure that out together, and then also take time to explore your body yourself when your partner is not around and find out what works. And then maybe the next time you're having sex, give them some directives of where to go and what to do and how to do things to make sex more enjoyable. It's, you know, whether or not sex is enjoyable, yes, involves all people, but it's also led by you, right? Like, you know, what's going to feel good. You know, what's going to make you happy. You know, what's going to feel pleasurable. And so you should try to know those things about yourself and however you can get to that point for yourself is a good start for sure. I agree. I think whenever given constructive criticism, it's really good to start with the positive. So, you know, you are really great at doing this. I love it when you do this. It feels so good when you do that. But can we try this or can we try that? Yep. So I think yep. if you reward your partner or just compliment your partner on the things that they're doing right first mm-hmm. and then go into the criticism part of it or the constructive criticism mm-hmm. part of it, that does make it easier to open up the, the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's, like you yeah. said, it's all about communication and knowing and exploring yeah. yourself too. And then yeah. just to add to the part where you just brought up, like, you also have to think about the relationship because if the relationship is on rocky terms or if you guys are button heads or like you mentioned mm-hmm. about, you know, the pandemic, if you're tired of seeing the person or if you're mm-hmm. juggling a million things, all of this can affect libido and yeah. orgasm. Yeah. So yeah, yeah so you bring up good points. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about sexual fantasies. First of all, what are sexual fantasies (laughs) and how do we open the conversation about sexual fantasies? Yeah, so fantasies are daydreams or like things that you play out in your head. Some people call it like a spank bank or like things that you have like sexual dreams about or like if you've always wanted to have sex in a public space or like a sex bucket list, right? So like things that you've always wanted to do or try and you know, they're usually things that people have a hard time sharing with others because it takes a lot of vulnerability to share those things about yourself, right? Like we're always afraid that 
if we share our deepest, you know, darkest like fantasies about anything that somebody is going to shoot us down and make us feel weird or wrong or dirty, quote unquote, or whatever, um, too freaky by sharing these moments. My policy is always don't yuck somebody's yum, right? If somebody is into it, it's not for you to judge or to like say anything negative towards them or make them feel weird about it. In a relationship especially, it's always great to be open and to listen. And if it's not something that you're into, then definitely express that. Do not get yourself in a scenario where you are acting out your partner's Mm -hmm. fantasies, even though you internally Mm -hmm. are like cringing and despising. And because that's going to lead to a lot of issues. If you are not into every detail about their fantasy, say, you know what, babe, that sounds great. The things that I'm into that you just said are this and this, but I'm not really feeling this part. I mean, relationships in general are about a healthy level of compromise. I don't mean compromise to the point where somebody's getting more than the other person out of a relationship. I mean, a healthy level of compromise to where people feel satisfied and everybody feels like it's a win-win, you know, kind of situation. So if you have sexual fantasies about like, you know, I don't know, having your partner watch you masturbate or watching your partner masturbate, just ask them like, hey, do you think the next time that you are masturbating, do you think maybe you could do it in the bed and I can sit and watch? Or do you think that you could use the vibrator on me next time? Or do you think that we can try this, this, or this? I've always kind of wanted to do this. And you've created a space for me where I feel safe to explore those things and be vulnerable enough with you to try them, you know, or if you want to try to watch porn together and see if you can find a category of porn that works for both of you to kind of help ramp y'all up before you get into it, or even like to watch for educational purposes and try to learn different positions and, or learn something that looks cool, but then modify it for your bodies or whatever, all of those things. It's kind of like the same way of saying, hey, I saw this new sushi restaurant down the street and I thought we'd give it a try tonight. Or, hey, I saw this new barbecue joint or this new, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's really just kind of like suggesting something new, like you would do in any other avenue of your relationship. It usually just causes anxiety for people because it requires us to be so vulnerable. And more often than not, we haven't really shared those sexual fantasies with anybody outside of ourselves. And you could even open it up by saying, hey, I've just been thinking about trying some new things lately. And I'm just wondering, do you have any sexual fantasies that like you've never really told me about something that you really want to try that you like have been embarrassed to tell me or like something that you think I wouldn't want to do? Let's try to share our fantasies. Like that's a way to spice up the relationship or that's a way to talk about, you know, we were talking about reconnection. That's a way to reconnect, to try to think of something new to do together exploring each other's fantasies or even just talking about it. Sometimes people find that even just talking about their fantasies is good enough and that they may not even need to act on those fantasies because it's just the matter of the experience of being able to be that vulnerable with someone that you love can be a turn on in and of itself. So even though you're telling them about a sexual fantasy, you may not even get to the trying the sexual fantasy until months down the line because the fact that your partner accepted your most vulnerable fantasy and desire is a huge turn on. And so you do role play or you do whatever, you know what I mean? 
I guess that just brings up the, the question, what if you have two people in a relationship, one person is into fantasies, but then you have the other mm-hmm. person who's more conservative, and yeah. but they want to open up and explore yeah. the fantasies of their partner because they want to make their partner happy. Like how yeah. do you manage to do that if you are the conservative Yeah, type? I mean, you know, there, there are... Yeah, no, that's a great question because there are some relationships where the interest in fantasies are not equatable. Like someone has a little more interest in it than the other. But like you're saying, in most relationships, people want to do what they can to make their partner happy. But I always advise to never do that at the expense of your own happiness or level of comfort or like letting going against your morals and values and like who you are as a person, there's nothing wrong with exploring things and looking into something. But if, you know, the fantasy for your partner is asking you to be somebody that is completely opposite of who you are on a regular basis, is asking you to change yourself or you're no longer going to be happy trying to fulfill their needs and wants and desires, then that's when things, you know, become unhealthy. So there may be a point in a relationship where one person is leading the fantasies because you all are kind of discovering fantasies together. So some person may come in with fantasies, the other person may not. So you'll start off by trying the fantasies that the one partner already has. And then that can open the gateway for the other person to start thinking about what their fantasies could be. Or if you don't feel comfortable only working with one partner's fantasies, then start like spitballing some ideas together and be like, okay, so does this, this, or this sound like something you would want to try? What about thinking this? What about trying this? You know what I mean? Even if it's something about like trying a different position or trying, a, you know, I don't know, a different toy or trying to stimulate one specific body part instead of always doing the same thing every time, you know, like those can also be considered fantasies. I want to make sure that people understand that fantasies are as big or as small as you want them to be. And that the point is that no matter what, you're always comfortable and you're being vocal about what you're okay with and what you're not okay with. And even if you start off saying you're okay with something that your partner wants to try And in the moment you realize, you know what? I'm actually not really feeling this. Please speak up and say that. Safe words. Yeah, (laughs) safe words. I mean, even within a relationship, every single time you get together sexually, you consent. You want to be sober. You want to be enthusiastic. And you want that shit to be consistent. You don't just say once at the beginning of your relationship and then always have sex and never ask for consent again. That's not how shit works. Every time you are touching their body, every time you are engaging in some sort of intimacy or sexual experience, you get verbal consent every time. Me and my partner have been together for 14 years, 14 years. We know each other inside and out and they're still consensual sexual encounters every time. You know what I mean? Like it's important to know your partner's boundaries And you can't know them without asking them. So even again, like I said, in the moment, if you feel like, yes, I'm up for helping you get this fantasy and figuring out what this sounds good to me. And then once you halfway in, you realize that shit ain't for you, then you need to let them know, do some halftime adjustments, figure out like what works that you can (laughs) then progress 
the rest of the experience together being together and enjoying mm -hmm. so yeah. you know it's important to know that like that's all you know a, a world of exploration fantasies is a world of exploration and sometimes things go well and sometimes things don't but you won't know until you try it and you won't know until you voice you know what you're into i know we laughed at safe words but I think that very real. we need to talk about them, <laughs> yeah, especially yeah. if you are in a situation where you're more conservative, quote unquote, and your partner is uh -huh. a little bit more out there. Are you open to explaining what they are and how we can develop them in a relationship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So safe words are really, I mean, they kind of started amongst the BDSM community, but I think at this point they spill over into any sexual experience where you establish a word with the person that you are being or the people that you are being intimate with that alerts them to the fact that something is happening that you don't want to have happen anymore. You can make it whatever word you want. It can be no, it can be stop, it can be pineapple, it can be red, it can be like, it doesn't really matter what the word is. It's just a word that, that everybody involved agrees on is the word that when you hear it, you stop right then and there, no matter what is happening, to check in right so and for some people there's like levels of safe words right there's like a word that inevitably no matter what means no and it's not even up for discussion like this went this is going too far i'm not we don't even need to talk about it because there is no version of this that i'm going to be comfortable with there can be a word a safe word that you do that's just like a check-in it's kind of like your yellow light right like this is a warning that like this is going somewhere that I may not be comfortable with. A safe word can even be as simple as saying, not so much pressure, or you, you see what I'm saying? Like things that you just kind of talk about before you actually engage in the experience so that no one is unaware of what these words mean. So some people don't like to use the words no or stop because it seems really abrasive. So that's why the term kind of safe word came up because not only does it establish that the experience that's happening is safe, but it also establishes that everybody involved feels safe when they hear the word, you know? So that's why you agree on what word you use because you don't want a word that triggers somebody or sounds abrasive or sounds like you're demanding something from somebody unless that's the type of, you know, sex that you into where you want to be told what to do. Like all of those things are things that you talk about up front, right? So there are levels to safe words, but at the very basic level, it's just being able to take a pause. When somebody hears yeah. that word, everybody involved stops, takes a pause, sees, checks in, right. and then you kind of decide collectively what to do from that point on. And that kind of goes into the next question. I think we've addressed it a little bit, mm -hmm. but what ways can a couple spice up their sex life and how can they make these transitions easily if the other person is a little skeptical? Like, yeah. as you mentioned before, introduction of sex toys or pornography yeah. or, you know, just anything yeah. different that they haven't been doing before. Yeah, no, for sure. At multiple points in my journey as a sex educator, I have sold sex toys for a variety of companies. I am trying to work on being able to sell them like myself on my website as a distributor and getting wholesale prices for things, but I don't have that option currently. For those who are listening, I do have some people that we can probably put in the episode description that you can go to get good quality sex toys from people that I trust and that you can therefore by proxy trust as well. But 
when it comes to sex toys, I think the easiest to introduce, you know, things for me, a lot of the, um, the pushback that I get exists among heterosexual couples where the male kind of feels threatened by a toy, thinking that ultimately this toy is going to replace them in a relationship. If she start doing it with this toy all the time, is she even going to want what I got, you know, mm. sort of thing. Right. And so I think that the easiest way to, cause that's a lot of male ego talking, yes. right. It's like, <laughs> a, and especially in the black community, it's about something being inserted into your partner that is not you or that is not a part of your body. And so a lot of times what I recommend is instead of slamming them for having toxic masculinity issues, <laughs> you can just open the dialogue about looking for a sex toy together. And so you talk about the different types of sex toys. You look on a website and you look at the different categories and you explain the type of sex toys that exist and have a conversation about what type of pleasure you're looking for and what toys can kind of help you experience that pleasure. <clears throat> and then you have a conversation and y'all pick out a toy together. There are toys that exist that are for multiple bodies, right? So it's not like you're only buying a toy that you can experience pleasure from. And, you know, research is out there that shows that people actually get more aroused by being able to provide pleasure to their partner than receiving pleasure more often than not. So if you're buying a toy, make sure it's one that your partner's comfortable with using on you, but that you may also want to use on yourself. And if the toy you use with your partner can be different than the toy you use for yourself, then by all means, buy two toys. You can never have too many sex toys. There's no such thing. And so, at least in my opinion, there's no such thing. In my opinion, um, <laughs> yeah, right. Variety is the spice of life, honey. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I mean, I think that the best way to start that conversation with sex toys specifically is to include your partner in that process, or include the people that you want to have. You know, I don't like to make it a a a twosome uh, experience all the time because you don't know who, how many people are having sex with how many people. So whoever is involved in the decision-making sexual experience, try to include as many people as you can that need to be <laughs> in deciding what toy to bring into the mix. And really, honestly, the same thing kind of goes with porn, right? Is like you do the suggestion of like when I'm by myself or when I like get into the mood to watch porn, these are the categories that I lean towards have you ever watched porn? I mean, if you haven't already had this conversation with your partner, have you ever watched porn? What kind of turns you on? Or if you're talking about sexual fantasies, do your fantasies involve watching, you know, two people of the same sex, you know, kind of enjoying each other? Is it a, is it a multiple people scenario? Like, is there a specific like aesthetic that you're looking for of the bodies that are involved? Like all those sorts of things. It's just trying to figure out what works. And then of course, making sure that you're watching ethically safe porn. You don't wanna watch porn that's degrading to a certain person or that takes advantage of, or really that has a shitty plot. Like, come on y'all, there's good ass porn out there. <laughs> and it all doesn't have to be creepers who are looking mm -hmm. in a window at a woman bent over a desk. Like, come on, it's 2021. Like, expand your mind. There is ethical porn out there. Like. So, but if you do happen to start at Pornhub, that's no shame. It's a great place to start, but just know that a lot of that is not real life, right? And so you can't go from watching 
porn on Pornhub to like reenacting it in your room. Squirting halfway across the room is not a thing in real life. <laughs> right, it's some not. Some people can squirt. Mm-hmm. Some people can squirt, you know, and there are some sex educators out there that believe that everybody can. I personally don't like to use that phrasing because I feel like it puts too much pressure on people because if they hear the phrase everybody can squirt and then they can't figure out why their body isn't doing it, then it's making them feel less than and I don't like to use language. It's true. And you'd be surprised. I talk yeah. with women who have questions about that. You know, they ask, yeah. Yeah. you know, why can't they do this, that, and the other? And everybody's yeah. bodies is different. Everybody is not designed yeah. to be able to do that. And that's a good yeah. point that you bring up. Yeah. yeah, it's a very good And I point. mean, that's probably going to be a conversation you'll hear more because apparently there's a viral video going around of this woman that was masturbating at brunch in a public space and like yeah, squirted brunch. At, at brunch, honey, in public. Yeah. So, hey. but the issue is like, <laughs> the issue is like, they can talk. How many mimosas? <laughs> right. So the thing, the thing is, is like, I don't know this person, obviously. So I don't want to make any judgments about like diagnosing anybody or saying that like she was tipsy or saying that for whatever reason she was at brunch and I haven't watched the video. I just have seen some of my colleagues talking about this. I have been in family land for a while, so I haven't really investigated, you know, the internets yet, but there is a video going around of a woman at brunch in public ejaculating but the issue is like y'all talking about her squirting but you can't say the phrase masturbation she was masturbating and there's nothing gross about masturbating there may be something concerning about doing it in public there could be a question of <laughs> like <brunch. laughs> why that was your interest at the moment but people are like throwing a diagnosis of sex addiction on her which ps is not a real thing like it you know it's just like a lot of things and i and so i think it should be very clear that first off i am not a sex therapist and i'm pretty sure that a lot of people who are listening to this are also not clinically sexually therapy trained and so it is not our job to diagnose anybody but the conversation about squirting is going to become more relevant now because this is a trend at the current moment so Kind of a heads up to you <laughs> as well as if anybody listening has watched this video, please do not yeah. feel less than if your body cannot do what her body did. Yes, if you are listening, please do not feel less yes. than. Um, so, you know, things, so like to get back to the main question, I mean, I think that the more that you can do to include your partner in the exploration of your body and adding sex toys and talking about porn and, and like processing a change in the intimacy of and the sexuality within your relationship, the better, right? And all of those conversations, although they may seem taxing, can only bring you closer because they're all topics that require you to be extremely vulnerable. And so being with somebody who you feel confident talking to and you feel safe and you feel like you can trust to talk to about these things speaks volumes about your relationship in general, right? So you already feel that innate trust and comfort, take stock in that and know that like you're in a relationship where you feel safe and that is a great feeling to have. Even if it's gonna cause anxiety and even if it may make things awkward for a second, the fact that you trusted to bring it up at all knows that you can get beyond whatever feelings of awkward and anxious, like anxiety that you're feeling anyway. And more often than not, conversations like this are not going to derail a relationship completely when you you 
Well, and, and yes, it shouldn't. If it does, then maybe you weren't as safe and you couldn't actually trust that person as much as you thought. So just take stock in, in that and trust that you know what you're into and what you're not, you know, yeah. and kind of figure that out and navigate it together. Mm-hmm. And just to piggyback on everything you said, I think that um, another way you can introduce something different into the bedroom is by gradually doing it. Like if you have a partner that is 100% conservative, do not bring whips and chains to the bedroom. Don't let that be the mm-hmm. first thing that you do. Right. Don't start <laughs> you don't know, start yeah, there. don't start there. Yeah. Just start yeah. something very, very small. Something, yeah. Yeah. you know, not too much out of the box. And then just gradually work yeah. your way up to doing it. And I think that's yeah. a good way to yeah. approach it as well. Because some people get intimidated, you yeah. know, by bringing that. Yeah. And then that can just really change the whole nature of your sexual relationship if you just start out with something so big right away. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's important to know who your partner is. So if you have a partner who is, for the most part, extremely conservative and doing things outside of the box makes them anxious or uncomfortable, then I probably wouldn't recommend adding anything that isn't on your bodies to the sexual experience to begin with. I would recommend starting at the exploring each other's bodies part because even that is so intimate that most people haven't done it because it makes them super anxious. And and if you're looking and if you have done that, take it up a notch and do that shit with the lights on because mm-hmm. we all know that even that being able to do that with the lights on is even a level up for some people because yeah. having sex with the lights on makes people really mm-hmm. anxious. And so doing a body exploration, even if it's just like, okay, for tonight, we'll explore upper bodies with the lights on. And then when we get to the lower bodies, we'll turn the lights off or we'll do the lower half of our bodies another night or whatever. Make sure that you're communicating, make sure that you're keeping in mind who your partner is because you want, because what's going to also make them more interested in exploring things with you will be seeing that you are taking them and their level of experience and comfortability into consideration before you're doing things. So the more that you incorporate them into the plans for expanding things into the bedroom, the more open they'll be to your suggestions because they know that what you're doing is keeping them in the forefront of, the, of your mind and making sure that they're comfortable. So just keep all of that in mind. Get consent for everything before, right. during, after, and go from there. Exactly. So now the next question, a lot of women suffer from past traumas, mainly like previous sexual traumas or abuse. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be an issue for women having orgasms or their libido and the way that they Mm -hmm. view sex. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is an important conversation for women to have with their partners, but sometimes it can be very um, hard for women or difficult for women to talk about, you know, their past. So how can women or men, because there are men out there who are in the same predicament, you know, how can we comfortably discuss our sexual quote unquote secrets with our partner? I think that I want to, I do want to shy away from the phrasing of secrets because then it seems like you're intentionally trying to keep something. It's more like you were saying (coughs) your sexual past or previous sexual encounters that 
are serving as some sort of block for you in some sort of way. And I, and I think that, you know, it's clear, it's clear for me that I need to give a disclaimer. Again, I am a sex educator. I am not a sex therapist. Things that I am saying are not meant to replace or substitute or even really work in addition with any sort of therapy um, or professional help that, you know, this would need. And I'm sure that some of my sex therapist friends and colleagues would answer this question far better than me, but I'm going to try to keep it pretty basic because I think that a lot of this depends on your level of comfortability. It is my personal belief that you are not obligated to share any sexual abuse or traumas to anyone that you don't feel confident or comfortable doing that with. With that being said, if you find that some things from your past may be preventing you from being able to experience a level of intimacy with your partner, and if you notice that lack of um, level of intimacy may be causing them to doubt themselves in the relationship, then that may be a time to at least express that you have some sort of history. That still doesn't mean that you have to go into every detail and give them every in and out of what happened in your past. You can just say you had negative experiences with X, Y, and Z. You're noticing that it's impacting the level of intimacy in your current relationship and you want to make sure that they know that it's not about them. It's more about unprocessed stuff from the past. And then it's up to you if you feel like, I mean, I think just for your own personal health and well-being, it's always good to try to seek some sort of therapy or counseling to help you process those things because not only can it impact your relationship with others, it can impact your ability to be intimate with yourself. And to me, I feel like even if the world ends and it's just you should be able to love yourself and to give yourself pleasure without feeling anxiety and, and having issues of trauma, you know, kind of impacting that experience for yourself. So for yourself, if nothing else, it's always good to talk to somebody that can give you some coping mechanisms or exercises to work through some of that or even like prompts to write in a journal or whatever it may be that works best for you to help you work through that trauma. I think unfortunately in this day and age, you are hard pressed to find a lot of women who have not had some sort of encounter sexually that was non-consensual, whether it can be categorized as abuse or assault may not be the case for everyone, but I mean, it's, we live in, you know, a um a culture of like shame and we live in a rape culture like country it is thriving and we don't talk about consent at the basic level even when it's like which we'll get to talking about with your kids about stuff like this we don't talk about consent at all in in any format in in any sort of avenue of our lives truly and so people just think that they are entitled to other people's bodies on a daily basis um so whether you've got trauma from being catcalled walking down the street every day to work or from an Uber driver being super creepy and uncomfortable driving you home or being in a relationship that was verbally abusive when it came to sex and intimacy but never really got physically abusive, all of those things can impact your ability to be intimate with anyone who would follow that relationship. I think it's just up to you 
you know, at what point you feel comfortable sharing that information and at what point you feel like it's necessary to, because again, there's no obligation for you to share those experiences with people if you aren't comfortable. But I try to encourage people just even for themselves, like I said, to seek, you know, somebody out professionally that can help if you notice that things are being affected by those experiences in your life and they're preventing you from being able to experience pleasure and intimacy in a way that you truly want to. Um, and even if you realize that it's been impacting you 10 to 15 years down the line, there is no statute of limitations on taking care of you. So whatever moment you realize that something is preventing you from living your best life and feeling as sexually liberated as you possibly can, that, experience, that was experienced in your past in some way, shape or form, take care of you first. I mean, I there's no, yeah, there's no time limit on when you realize that those things are impacting you. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. um, it's more about like taking stock in yourself and kind of recognizing mm -hmm. when those things are impacting. Yeah, you even if that where... means ending a relationship, yeah, I agree with yeah. that because if you're not completely healed from whatever situation it may be, it just might mean that you need to take time to yourself to get down mm -hmm. to the core of the problem. And you may yeah. not need the distraction of someone in your ear asking you, okay, when can we have sex or when can mm -hmm. we, you know, you might just need to be solo and just get work through this process. And then when you're ready yeah. to date, then you slowly, gradually get into that. Yeah, I agree with yeah, that. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I, and I would also like to say there are a lot of, there are a lot of men currently in my life that are like friends and fathers who in this day and age are realizing that things that they did in the past may have caused somebody to have an experience that was abuse or assault adjacent in a sexual encounter. And they're dealing with the reality that they may have caused that trauma for somebody else. So from the other side of it, that can also impact your relationship because then it's like for a few of my friends, it's been like, they're too anxious to initiate sex with their wives or their partners because they feel like by initiating, they're not giving them consent or the ability to consent or that they're making them feel pressured or now it's like they're almost too worried to even engage in any sort of intimacy with their partner because they're afraid that their patterns have just been going on all this time and they weren't aware of it until now because conversations like this are coming coming up a little more frequently in my opinion not frequently enough but enough with especially with the me too movement where people are realizing that some of the shit they did back in the day was shady as hell and that they left people out here with trauma. And that's a hard thing to tackle too, because the people that I know specifically, that was never their intent. It's just nobody's talking about consent in a way that let them realize what they did was problematic. And now they're realizing that it's not an excuse for their behavior, but I'm saying that's why they're realizing it now, because they're trying to teach their kids about consent or about being respectful of people's bodies and they're realizing all the times in their life when they were younger that they didn't do that. And so they've got unprocessed trauma about being the cause of trauma for someone. So in that instance, also take care of yourself. Make sure that you are right with yourself and that you can learn how to forgive and know that you can work past it. And so 
conflicts. Like my husband always jokes about it because it's hard to, it's hard to tackle, but sometimes you wrestling with being a trash human being in your 20s. You are a trash human being in your 20s and you didn't intend for it to be, but this is just kind of how society raised us. And you realizing that the shit that you did was trash. And so now you're trying to figure out how to forgive yourself for things and you question and everything you've done since then and you know so forth and so on so it it works from both ends of the spectrum but the message either way is, is to take same. care of you yeah and yeah and to add to what you just said if we could start educating our youth that's why it's so important to get into these high yeah. schools and to teach yeah. these students about safe words and about sexually transmitted infections and rape culture and just teach them about these things so that they don't make these mistakes when they're sexually active and when they approach Mm -hmm. women or men in their 20s and they don't make these type of um, mistakes. So, you know, that's why education is so key. I think a lot of people in our generation and, and those that came before us didn't really get this type of information because there's so much taboo attached, you know, to sex and to sex education. So now we're a little bit more open about it. And so I think that the fact that we're open about it, we just need to be a little bit more out there in the community and educating our young girls and our boys about this. So that way they're not making those mistakes. And so we can just stop this cycle that's going on. I know we were going to get to the conversation about talking to your kids about sex, but the the conversation about consent started in my house from the minute I gave birth. Like four of my children could talk. Every time I wiped them changing diapers, I named their body parts and explained to them what I was doing. And by the time they could sign yes and no, I asked for permission to touch their bodies. I, I asked them, may I have a hug? I ask them, may I have a kiss? I don't demand that they hug and kiss every family member. I don't demand that they acknowledge everyone who walks into my house. I give them autonomy over their bodies. And then they in turn give that to me. So they know not to run up and hug me without asking mommy, may I give you a hug? Or, you know, that conversation starts from day one. And that's not sexual, that's just respecting somebody's personal boundaries. You start talking about consent before they even understand language. Give them the word so they know what the words are to ask for things. I think that you ask to leave the table, you ask to get food, you don't just open up my refrigerator. Like all of these things are connected to consent and it's giving them the foundation for using the language to ask for anything, right? They don't go up and sporadically hug their friends. They hold their arms out and ask, can I get a hug? These are things that, you know, and of course it's not foolproof. They're babies. Sometimes they have impulses, but then I have a conversation and say, no, you can't just walk up and hug somebody. You have to ask for consent to touch people's bodies and remind them of the language that can start so early. So then by the time they get to high school, they're like, rape culture, what are you talking about? Why would anybody even think that they would have access to somebody's body like that? Because their entire lives have been based on a foundation of consent in every aspect of their lives. And so it doesn't have to be just in middle school or just in high school. That can start in infancy. Like it's really a very like basic level conversation, naming body parts, what they actually are, instead of giving them nicknames 
all of that is connected. We don't nickname an ear. Why would we no. nickname a penis? Or a breast or a vagina. Yeah. Medically accurate term. Mm -hmm. Say vulva, say vagina, say right. labia, say testicles, say scrotum. Use the words. They're there. So, you know, but that's so a, that. We can, yeah. <laughs> it's an awesome prelude <laughs> to yeah, the, the prelude session. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to the next topic of discussion. So recently on the wind down, which is another segment of this podcast, where we discuss things that are going on in the media, we recently discussed a story about a private school that was teaching sexual education to first graders. And they mm -hmm. discussed things such as body parts, even masturbation, everything mm -hmm. was in that vi video. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a little controversial because not everyone believed that children should be exposed to this type of information in first grade. Because I think when you're first grade, what are you, six, five, six, seven yeah, years five old? Or six. You know, six, mm -hmm. Yeah, six, some could be seven. It just kind of depends. Yeah. Right. And so, um, but then there are others that kind of felt like, okay, well, this is good information because kids start exploring themselves very early in age, whether we realize it or not. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, what is your take on this? Like, how do you feel about this school's approach to teaching a health course? And when is a good time to discuss sex with our children? I mean, I think it's, I think it's fabulous. I think every school should be implementing classes like this. I love teaching this age. So the first thing that I want to say is, Teaching your child the name of their body parts decreases their chances of being a victim of child abuse substantially. Because when you think about people who take advantage of children, they're looking for people that they can groom and that they can prey on, which means that they likely have people or they don't have people in their lives that are looking out for them or caring for them. That's not always the case, let me be very clear. But oftentimes they're looking for people who have like holes in parental watching, right? So that they can have time alone with them that nobody's realizing that they have time alone with them. They're kind of grooming them. They're building a relationship. They're able to have moments where they can tell them, don't tell your parents these things. If they see or come across a child who knows the names of their body parts, they know automatically that they've got somebody in their life that is taking stock in them, their bodies, their health, and more than likely, they're not the type of person or child that you're going to be able to groom in the way that you want to. So it deters people from potentially being able to take advantage of your child. Again, nothing is ever foolproof and all children who are abused are not from families that don't care about them. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it lowers the probability of it happening because a lot of the cases of child abuse, not all of them, but a lot of them involve children who, you know, just have like absent caregivers, so to speak, or like just have moments where they can be taken advantage of and adults don't recognize that they're missing or whatever, right? Where they just have access to the kids in general. So that's the first thing. So talking to six and seven-year-olds about their body parts is amazing. My opinion, start it from day one. Like I said, my ch the first time my son said penis, I had one little thug tear, girl, come right down this cheek. <laughs> I was like, I'm so proud yeah. of you, baby. <laughs> and, and Dia, she's two. She says bulba. She's not at the V's yet. She got a B down, so she calls it her bulba. But she <laughs> knows what it is. 
and Emery knows that Dia and mommy have a vulva and that him and daddy have a penis and those are two different body parts and we are two different sexes um, and that he doesn't touch his sister, he doesn't touch his dad, he doesn't touch his mom. And he's, you know, he's four and a half, but for the last, I would say, maybe year, we've been dealing with like finding him masturbating around the house because he's interested in his body parts. Again, that started at three and a half years old. Let's also be very clear. We start masturbating in the womb. We masturbate in the womb to help us sleep while we are growing before we are even born, right? So touching our bodies is not new to us by first grade. It has been happening, whether you are aware of it as a parent or not, it has yeah. long been happening. So when we find him touching himself, we just tell him there's nothing wrong with doing it. We understand that it feels good. You just don't do it in a public space. You do that in your room where it's private and you can shut the door. So we ask him every time that we find him, would you like to go touch your penis in your room upstairs? And normally he's like, no, I want to stay and watch a movie or I want to stay and you know, play with my toys. And we're like, okay, we'll go wash your hands. And then come back and continue what you're doing without having your hands down your pants. You know what I mean? So yeah. we, we make it a normal thing. I'm not going to shame my son for touching his body. That concept is ludicrous to me. So by the time these kids are in sixth or seventh grade, giving them the phrase of masturbation is not so shocking as, you know, as it should be again they are but maybe two or three years from doing that intentionally to the point of ejaculation, even though they don't know what that is, they know that it feels good. In the beginning, they're doing it for a little bit. They don't know that eventually that feeling ends and that there's an end to that. So they don't know when to stop, start, whatever. So it's usually not to completion. They're not masturbating to completion. But once they hit like eight, nine, they're doing that consistently because they know it feels good and they know what ejaculation feels like. And let me also remind people that masturbation is one of the safest forms of sex because you cannot get anybody pregnant and you cannot give yourself an STI. So, you know, my plan is, again, I'm a very progressive parent. I have been a sex educator for almost 16 years. I plan on, by the time my child is 10, you're going to know how to ejaculate into a condom because I don't want that excuse that like sex feels better without a condom because you haven't ejaculated into a condom when you are masturbating mm -hmm. you use a condom because i'm also not washing your socks and your sheets <laughs> with all of your ejaculation all crusty i'm not doing I that i know that's right <laughs> right so like do it in the shower where it can be washed off and bleached or do it into the the condom so you can throw it away and you will properly know how to throw out a condom as well you will know how to tie it off and throw it in my trash you know what I mean like because then by the time you become sexually act active you're associating sex with condoms and protection and I'll have the conversation again but it won't be a surprise to you that won't be the first time we're talking about it so like having those conversations starting in first grade giving them the language for what's going to happen to their bodies is not a bad thing now if they're only talking about it in class and there's no parental component where you're following up with your child at home as a parent having a follow-up conversation with your kids then i would probably say that's an element of the curriculum that's missing that still doesn't negate the importance of them having a health class in first grade. But I think anytime you are talking to a minor, I know for me, 
I build caregiver packets. I don't talk to minors before their children, before their parents or caregivers know damn near every word I'm saying to them. I don't play yeah. those games. And right? I think because that that was the biggest, yeah, I think that that was the biggest issue with this story is that the mm-hmm. parents didn't know. They yeah. were doing so this they course. Have cons- they didn't have consent yeah. or anything like mm-hmm. that to talk to them yeah. about it. I think okay. that's what it was with this story that you okay. know, some of the parents didn't know, and so they were in the uproar. But yeah, you know, I, mean, I, I, I yeah, understand I would understand the. I mean, they have a right to be upset because they don't know that that's what's being, you know, said to their kids. I mean, normally, you know, we do like an opt out process when I teach in schools. So we give parents the option, and we give caregivers the option to opt their children out of the sex ed courses but then I still try to provide them with conversation starters and resources to still have those conversations at home even though they're not starting with me in a classroom because my job as a sex educator is to give you knowledge and information it is not my job to teach you morals values a belief system that's not what this is I'm here to give you information so that you can make a bet the best decision for you when the time comes it's the family's job and the caregiver's job on the back end to establish those morals, values, family beliefs, and things like that. I'm not here to do that for you. And so I think that sometimes where a line can get crossed or where the perception of what sex education is wrong is because, I mean, if I'm asked a personal question and it's not anything too outrageous, I will share my belief, but I make it very clear that's not something I expect the class to inherit, accept, or understand. I say for myself, for my kids, for my life, this is how I do things. That doesn't mean that's how your life is going to be, how your parents feel, how your grandparents feel, how your friends feel, or how you should feel. Those are conversations you should have with your caregivers and adults, you know, in your life, that sort of conversation. So in a perfect world, what would have happened is that parents would have been able to opt their kids out of that first grade class and that caregivers would have been notified of what they were gonna be talking about to their kids and also given tools and resources and knowledge and language to be able to continue those conversations with their kids beyond the health class at school so that the conversation continues. And they would have been given resources for when those conversations adjust when their kids are in second grade and third grade. And you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. But I think that's a great age to start and or like continue what's been happening at home if you choose to start, you know, I'm doing whatever I can in my house to erase sexual shame. I mean, I was talking to my kids in the womb <laughs> about stuff yeah. like, mm-hmm. know this vocab. <laughs> Y'all don't yeah, know and words. I think there's such a, a stigma on educating young girls and boys about sex is because people think that they are exposing their children to sex or giving them the permission to have sex when they start talking about sex with them or they're polluting their minds you know Mm -hmm. i'm talking to my child about sex so i'm polluting their minds they're going to be sexual beings and all this other stuff so i think that that's where the misconception lies and why they're so much of an issue that some parents have with talking to their children about sex there are there are decades and decades of scientific and academic research that shows that starting a comprehensive inclusive approach to sex education at an early age actually delays the onset of sex 
for uh, people. If you look at any other country aside from ours, their teen pregnancy rates are lower, their SCI rates are lower, their age of sexual debut is lower. I don't like to use the term virginity because it's the social construct. It's not an actual thing. It was created by religion and Hallmark. Virginity is not real. Just that's a whole nother sidebar, but your sexual debut, the first time you have sex, um, is, is, a, is a later age in every other country because they openly talk about sex. They have condoms available pretty much everywhere. It's a pretty well-known and they're available for free. Parents are encouraging and accepting of their child's first sexual experience happening in their own beds, in their homes, uh, instead of on the floors of YMCA bathrooms and in the back seats of cars and like, you know, you don't want your child's experience with sex to be uncomfortable and dirty and like unsanitary and like not enjoyable, right? Because sex is meant to be enjoyable. It is not just for procreation. And so to give them exposure to a comfortable environment for sex is something that a lot of other countries are an advocate of. And so I don't know that our country will ever get to that point, but the but there is more than enough data to show that talking about these topics at a very early age actually, again, delays the age of your sexual debut because they have enough knowledge to know what's happening. They know how to not be pressured into situations and experiences that they're not comfortable with because they have been taught how to speak up and advocate for themselves and their bodies. They have been taught how to make educated decisions for themselves because they're given all of the information so that they know how to make the convert or how to make the decision for themselves. They are taught how to healthily communicate with each other. All of those things exist and it's just a part of culture. They're just treated as human beings and not like kids who don't have brain power. They're going to make decisions. The question is, do you want them to make those decisions knowing all of the information that they need to know to make the best decision for themselves? You don't teach a kid the, the pyramid of all the food groups and not tell them about vegetables, but expect them to know that they should eat them. It's not, it, there's nothing different about it. You equip them with all the information they need to know about every other aspect of their life, every other subject, but the one that could actually impact their entire lives and their livelihood, we don't talk to them about. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Yeah. It makes no sense to me. You mm -hmm. preach, brush your teeth two times a day, eat three servings of fruits and vegetables, do all these things, get your calcium, drink your milk, do this, like, you know, be a professional, do this, this, that, and that. But then when it comes to the thing that's the most intimate and the most personal, we don't talk about it. the number of women who have given birth and don't understand how they became pregnant or what happened to their body during pregnancy, the number of girls who are five or six years into having a menstrual cycle and still don't know what is actually happening mm -hmm. to them or how to properly take care of their bodies and or how to have hygiene, like a positive outlook on hygiene is, it's astonishing, right? And so it's like, I just don't understand why it just isn't part of how we prepare people for life. It's so foundational. This shit is so foundational. It how is. to have healthy communication is essential for any per interpersonal relationship that you mm -hmm. have, not just a sexual one. How to make 
a conscious decision that's the best option for you is an essential skill for anything in your life, not just when you're ready to have sex or if you're using protection or what birth control method to be. These are foundational skills that these people should, that our kids should have, right? And we're not talking about them. It's not just talking about sex. In fact, most of sex ed is talking about relationships and healthy communication. And it's like all the interpersonal stuff, media literacy, establishing boundaries, talking about consent. The part where we actually talk about the stuff that makes people uncomfortable is very minute in comparison to the rest of the content. We're not teaching your kids sex positions, but you know who is? YouTube, Pornhub, the people in the showers at high school, the talk on peers. the buses on the way home, their peers, uh, yeah. you know, media. That's not me. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> but I can teach them how to handle all of that information so they know what's real and what's mm -hmm. not and what's not a realistic expectation, you know? So it's just kind of getting people yeah. to reframe how they look at sex education because yeah. we really spend the shortest like portion talking about like birth control, pregnancy, abortion, you know, abstinence, all that stuff. It's like one lesson, maybe two out of yeah. a 13 week curriculum, for example, you know what I mean? There's so much more to it. Yeah. And so that can start at any age. So, you know, yay for that first grade class, just get consent from parents next time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the way to do it. Get yeah. consent, let the parents I mean, opt in or opt out. Short. <laughs> long story short, please talk to the adults in these first graders' lives. Sweet baby yes. Jesus. Yes, <laughs> really. Yeah. And I'm here to let parents know that, you know, your child may know more about sex than you think they know. Because Amen, I'll do. never, yeah, I'll never forget when we were putting on a health conference and the discussion came up whether or not we should invite the middle school student because it was always for the high school student. Mm -hmm. You know, the discussion came up whether or not we should invite the middle school students to take part in the health conference because on the health conference, we talked about sexually transmitted infections. They did mm -hmm. HIV screening and all kind of stuff. It was just a wonderful health conference, but we wanted to leave the middle school students out. But um, somehow, and I can't remember, eventually they were able to come. You know, we allowed okay. them to take part of it. Let me tell you, these middle schoolers had more information you know, and knowledge and seen more so, than, and they're more verbal than yep. the high school. Yeah, so absolutely. you can't underestimate these children and think that they don't know anything because like you said, YouTube is teaching them, the mm -hmm. internet is teaching them, the TVs are teaching them, and their peers are teaching mm -hmm. them. And so, you know, yeah. if you're going to, you want to make sure you filter the knowledge that they have too, because not all the information that they get is accurate. You right. know, so right. it's, it's important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the next question, um, we kind of discussed masturbation. And what I wanted to know is with masturbation, is that something that you should continue when you are in a relationship? Because there are rumors that masturbation can actually make it more difficult to achieve an orgasm with your partner because you become used to a certain type of stimulation. So is that true yeah. or what do you um, think? I mean, that's not necessarily a true thing. Now, if, you know, if you end up 
masturbating more than having intimate experiences with your partner, then obviously you're going to have more orgasms because you're masturbating more than you are having sex with your partner. That's just, the math is math. But it's not like if you masturbate five days in a row and then you have sex on the sixth day, your body doesn't experience pleasure from intercourse on the sixth day. That's not how things work, right? Your vagina is a muscle. It responds to things that stimulate it, right? So if you're not in, if you're not experiencing an orgasm during intercourse, then that's more about figuring out how to get, how to experience pleasure when another body is attached to something. Because of course you can, if you're using a toy or some sort of insertable thing to masturbate, you can move that around in ways that you can't move a body around because it's just one thing. It's not a whole person that has to like do angles and stuff, but also masturbating while you're in a relationship is one of the best ways to ensure that you are um, continuously being in tune with your body. And then you can then communicate what you found to be the most stimulating for yourself while masturbating to your partner and then figure out how to translate that when it involves your partner versus a toy or your fingers or whatever. So like you pay attention to the position that your body was in when you were masturbating, you pay attention to the position of whatever you were inserting into your vulva. For example, a lot of, a lot of my clients and experiences are with individuals with vulva. So that's why I'm talking about it from this standpoint. But when it comes to people with penises, it's more about, okay, is it a pacing thing? Is it how tight you're squeezing? Is it about where your hand is? Are you also stimulating testicles or does that not please you? Or like, you know what I mean? Like paying attention to those sorts of things and then being able to communicate what's working while you're masturbating with your partner so that that translates to a sexual encounter. So if anything, masturbating while you're in a relationship, in my opinion, kind of enhances your sex because you know more about your body and what is pleasurable and what is enjoyable to you and you have more firsthand knowledge and experience of how to communicate that to your partner. And if you don't know how to communicate that in an effective way with words, then show them, right? Have the next time you masturbate, have them watch and see if they can figure out how they should move their body or how they, whatever, make it a teaching and also pleasurable experience for people, right? Incorporate mm -hmm. them into that if you are unsure of how to effectively communicate that to them. So I, I think it's a better thing to do than not. Yeah, that's an excellent response. So now we're going to go into the true and false questions. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to put disclaimer on the true and false questions. Um, you know, <laughs> I really think that <laughs> they can be true on someone's perception or false in someone else's perception. So there's no right or wrong answer to them, but just to make the questions a little fun we're going to tag true or false on them <laughs> so so the first question is um sexual compatibility can be determined after one encounter and sure. i've asked this question because i know women where this uh -huh. is true for them and i know some men yeah. where this might be true for them so yeah. how do you feel about this yeah, I think the reality is that we know whether or not we find somebody attractive in one second. We know whether or not we want to sleep with them within like a minute, I think. 
Um, so you, that, and that's just kind of like, like biologically how our, you know, kind of bodies work, right? So there are things that are signals to either the opposite sex, the same sex, whoever you are attracted to, that signal that somebody's attracted to you and vice versa. One of the most common things is enlarged pupils. Another thing is like, you know, a variance in breathing or just kind of like stuff like that, right? So it's more about like attraction, also people's pheromones. If somebody smells really good to you, chances are your pheromones are rocking with theirs and their pheromones are rocking with you. If somebody smells weird to you, then you may not be rocking with their pheromones. All of those things, um, you know, factor into sexual compatibility. So it can definitely be determined after one encounter, but for some, it may take more than one time, but I think it can definitely be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that when it comes to like being in the bedroom, because that's kind of where the question was more so going for like the sexual compatibility where, yeah. Uh, two people are having sex for the first time like some people might be like okay this that was terrible the first time <laughs> we're not oh, going to yeah. be sexually <laughs> you yeah. know and sometimes I think that in that instance you know nerves get in the way you might be nervous you might not want to offend the person if you're being quote unquote yourself in the bedroom um, mm -hmm. So you kind of hold back a little bit, but the other person might perceive it as you not being the greatest person. And then the second encounter mm -hmm. might be better. So mm -hmm. I do think that in my personal opinion, I think that it's really good to judge it based on other encounters. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if it's a matter, if it's a matter of you want to have more than one encounter with that person, for sure. I think, um, you know, what, and I should be clear, I didn't really specifically state this but all of the things that I was talking about play into whether or not the sex is good too right so if you are biologically attracted to somebody then it's automatically more than likely going to make your sex better because the attraction is kind of like you know it's like upping the ante right mm -hmm. versus if there's somebody that you're not that your body is just not kind of vibing with but then you yeah. still find out the sex is great for some people that happens mm -hmm. for other people it doesn't um but some of the kind of nature version of things that make us compatible impact our sexual compatibility in the bedroom too. But yeah, I think for some people, it takes a few times, right, to know whether or not you are compatible with somebody. And for others, you can know after one encounter and you may or may not want that encounter to happen again. That's up to you. But it's definitely something that can happen and has happened for a lot of people <laughs> in the world. Yep. <laughs> The next question is, it's important to establish exclusivity before having sex. <laughs> I mean, it's important if that's something that you need. As an individual, need to have somebody who was exclusively having sex with you before you have mm -hmm. sex with them, then absolutely it's important to establish that. If you are in a relationship that has not yet established its monogamy and you don't feel like that's super important to you at the time that you all start having sex, then that's fine too. It's important if it's important to you. So right. I would definitely say don't engage in sex with somebody expecting them to be exclusive if you haven't said anything. Because then right. you can't get mad if you find out they haven't been exclusive and you didn't express that that was important for you. You have to yeah. be able to, to say very plainly what you need from somebody 
before you start having sex mm -hmm. if you have qualifiers like that. Right, so, yeah, exactly. If it's important to establish it for you, then it's important. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we've gone over the next question a few times, especially when we talked about safe words. Mm -hmm. Clarifying sexual boundaries is important before establishing a sexual relationship. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I think it's, yeah, I think it's definitely, um, definitely important. And I will say that even for people who intend to only have a sexual encounter once, right? Like mm -hmm. anytime you're having sex, it's important to clarify what boundaries you have because people need to know what is important to you if you are having sex with them, whatever those boundaries are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I true. agree with that as well, too. That is definitely true. And if you think it's false, um, we're uh, questioning your ethics. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I'm not saying that. That was the eavesdrop saying that, because... <laughs> The next question is, one shouldn't have to teach their partner about their turn-ons. They should automatically know what they are doing. And I know a lot of women that say this, they shouldn't have to tell a man what turns them on. They should automatically know a woman's body and their turn-ons. So what do you no. say about no, that? That's, I mean, unequivocally, I say that that is false mm -hmm. because nobody mm -hmm. is a mind reader. And again, like I said before, it is not the person who you are having, the person or persons who you are having sex with. It's not their responsibility to, to get you off. It's yours. It's not their responsibility to know what turns you on. It's yours. After you've been with somebody for so long, they obviously know if like nibbling on your left ear is something that gets you hot and heavy. If you've been with them for years, Sure, but that still doesn't mean that they should assume five years in that's still your turn on. You can still vocalize if you have either grown in other turn ons or if that no longer turns you on or whatever. It's all about communication. So it, you cannot assume that your partner should know anything because there is no one turn on that works for all women identified individuals. That's not a thing. That's not a thing. Just like there's no one turn on that works for anybody in general, yeah. right? Any, any specific body, there is no one turn on for everybody. So yeah. it's important to know what works for you so that you can communicate that. I mean, it's all about teaching your partner. If you want to have enjoyable sex, you have mm -hmm. to be able to communicate these things. Yeah. So if and you I don't wanna... know for yourself, then figure it out. There are ways yeah. to do that. Exactly. And I want to add to the flip side of that, too. Like, if you have a partner that's trying to tell you what they like, don't get offended about that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you because, want the sex to be enjoyable for both people. Yeah, exactly. That's why they're telling you, right? They want sex yeah. to be enjoyable, not only for them, but also for you. How frustrating is it to find out that you've been doing one certain thing for a year, and then you find out that's not even something that turns your partner on in the first place? I mean... That's frustrating. I'll be like, why wouldn't you have told me that you didn't even like it when I sucked your left toe? Like you got, you know, you got to communicate these things. I've been yes, you have to now for a year, and now you telling me, you know, I mean, I'm using it as an example. I'm trying to be funny, but it, like it's, you know. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> but it's true. Mm -hmm. You know. So yeah, vice versa. I mean, ask your partner. Like, ask your partner to teach you what their turn ons are. It's sexy. Mm, it is. That. 
right? Yeah, I think it is too. It's that sexy, yeah. yeah. And it makes you think that they're really trying to get into you. They're really trying to yeah. learn you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yep. It matters okay. if they make that effort, right? It they're does just matter. Assuming that you like whatever they've been doing with every other partner, that doesn't really make you mm -hmm. feel special, mm -hmm. right? I want you to take time to get to know me and my body and make me mm -hmm. my pleasure and enjoyment a priority. Like that's sexy as right. hell. It you is. Know? Yep, it yeah. really is. Well, Erica, my soror, <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on the eavesdrop and sharing your expertise. I think this was awesome. It was fun. And um, I think that a lot of women have learned, will learn something from this episode. And I just oh, want to let you know publicly that I'm so proud of you and all that oh. you are doing to destigmatize and educate our communities about sex. And before you go, I want you to tell everyone where they can find you. Well, yeah, first off, you ain't about to make me emotional at the end of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. You can't switch on me like that. I know, I gotta <laughs> switch it now. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I appreciate that more, um, more than you can imagine. Mm. I appreciate it and I respect you for all of the same reasons. So thank you yeah. for reaching out and for having me. Everybody can find me on all of the socials at Happy Sex Talk, just one word, and it's spelled again H A P P E Sex Talk. Mm -hmm. And my website is www.happysextalk.com. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I mean, I got a TikTok, but that's really just to troll people. Mm -hmm. I'm getting there. Uh, I have a Patreon account that is Happy Sex Talk as well. And then if you are a podcast listener on Apple and Spotify podcast, the name of my podcast is OK Keep It Sexy. We are in our first season. And I think so far there's eight episodes up and I have two more to release um, for the first season before I go on a, on a little bit of a creative break. <laughs> yeah, so please listen to that and, you know, support my girl here, man. This is an amazing <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah. I, I, I'm so glad we got connected. Mm -hmm. Hopefully this is not the only time. Oh no, because we, we will have you back. back. Trust and believe. <laughs> yeah, Trust and believe. Me up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, that is a wrap. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to The Eavesdrop. I hope that you enjoyed Erica. And as always, I hope that you learned something new. If you are enjoying The Eavesdrop, do me a favor. Please rate the show. Rating the show will allow more women to discover The Eavesdrop and have access to the same wonderful information. If you have comments, questions, or if you want to suggest a show topic, leave me a message at drshalanabattle at gmail.com. Again, that is drshalanabattle at gmail.com. Also, stay connected with The Eavesdrop on IG at the Real Eavesdrop underscore podcast. You may also visit the website at theeavesdroppodcast.com. If you are looking for ways to monetarily support The Eavesdrop, and any donation of any amount is always accepted. You may find more information about giving on the eavesdroppodcast.com. Well, 
This has been an awesome show. Until the next time, be well, be whole, and be blessed. Bye.